In this episode, we talk about some topics that might be triggering. So please do check the show notes for content warnings and feel free to skip this episode if it's not right for you. Hi, I'm Dr. Alex Fullard. I research childhood trauma and embrace at Telethon Kids Institute. You're listening to Embracing the Mind, where people who have experienced mental health challenges share their journey with me. I also talk to researchers about the latest treatments, data, and insights into mental health. Today, I'm talking to Liam Sorrell, a dad, counsellor, and host of his very own podcast, Grit and Gratitude. Liam lives up north in Karratha and founded the Australian Dads Network, an organisation dedicated to supporting new dads. My next guest is Vincent Mancini, a researcher at the Telethon Kids Institute. Vincent talks me through the changes that new dads go through, as well as his work on the Fathering Project. This research aims to empower fathers to improve the health and well-being of their children and families. So I'm joined by Liam Sorrell. Liam, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, can do. So uh, I'm based up here in Karratha, uh, in the northwest of Australia. Uh, my wife and I relocated here from Queensland, where we were backpackers uh, wow. for some time, and and we sort of stopped here in the boom and haven't left uh, since 2014. We've we we have become parents or became parents. Uh, we've got two boys, Reed, who's eight, and Keegan, who's uh, seven. They're 15 months apart, and uh, and yeah, we're we're really enjoying our life in the Pilbara, and we we just keep uh, keep trying to explore new things and do different things. And I'm sure through this conversation, we can expand on a few of those those points. Yeah, right amazing, now. amazing, Liam. So, what I really want to touch on is is what you've just mentioned. So, your experience of becoming a father very different to backpacking in Queensland <laughs> or backpacking mm-hmm. around. Can you tell me what it was like becoming a dad? I suppose the biggest thing that came to me was uh, a real a realization that now being a dad, there is uh, there is more than just looking after myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the, the biggest uh, eye opening thing. Is you know, there's a big identity shift from being a man or a, or a woman to then you know being a mum or, or a dad. It's it's a huge it's a huge uh, part of our journey, I suppose, in life. And for me and uh, and my wife Alison, it was it was no different. We 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 became parents. We Alison's parents are from Canada, and my parents. Uh, I grew up in Melbourne, mm. so we were we were over here essentially, sort of by ourselves for a lot of it. The parents would come and go from time to time, but yeah. we were we were new parents doing it uh, essentially on our own, and it was yeah, it was quite daunting. And we went through some some pretty big challenges early on with um, with our firstborn Reed, who had silent reflux, and so yeah. um, for the first six months of his life, uh, we we were on forty five minute sleep intervals, oh. and it was really challenging for us during that time. And and so we learned a lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about our own needs and, and requirements for for mental health and emotional health, and and obviously sleep being a big part of mm. uh, a big part of that journey, and a lack of sleep for us. For us in our case, mm. and yeah, we we also realised that the connection element of being a new parent, you know, connecting with others to be able to share that journey is something that we didn't have, and and would have now in hindsight uh, and, and upon reflection, it would have been really important for us uh, and helpful for us to be able to 
speak to others who are in similar situations. Yeah, for sure. So there's a couple of things that I want to touch on there. So the first is, you know, I, I think a lot of people would relate to having medical stuff come up with especially firstborn children. You're especially anxious around that time. You don't know what to expect. So what was it like? So silent reflux. So this is a a condition that your firstborn had, did you say in the first six months? Yeah, it took us, it took us just over six months to to get it diagnosed. Yeah. Was that kind of like he was, he was crying a lot because he was in pain because he had reflux coming up and he's, because he's a baby, he can't tell you that that's what's happening. Yeah, spot on. He was going to sleep. Uh, and he was waking up 45 minutes later in a cry that, you know, seemed like he was in, in pain. some sort of pain. Yeah. And so we would we would do what we could to, you know, help him back to sleep and, and soothe him back to sleep. And, and Alison and I would do this together. I wanted to be that support for her and, and, and we would do this together. And, mm. and so as a result, we were both not sleeping. Oh. Um, and during that time, we would go to GPs and, and ask them, you know, what's going on here and, and a lot of the time the GPs would say that that's just what babies do. Babies don't sleep very well and, and they mm. don't cry and they cry a lot. Yeah. And so we, we just sort of kept plugging away at it thinking that maybe it was something that was normal or yeah. it would stop or, you know, maybe we were doing something wrong. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of things going on and, and it really impacted us um, in, in our mental health but mm. also, you know, for me at work it was, uh, it was a challenge as well, really shifting yeah. that um, – you know, I was a, was a really positive, strong leader, um, and then during this time, really sort of switched that to being someone that wasn't really a positive leader anymore because I was bringing all of my stress and my frustration and fatigue uh, to work, and mm. so it just became a real vicious spiral. Um, and so at that six month mark, that's when we ended up meeting with a pediatrician, and yeah. the pediatrician just um, yeah looked at Alison uh, in particular and said, you know, you need to you need to get this sorted out. This is what I reckon it is, and, and that's when he said silent reflux. And and for me, and, and moving into that space of, well, cool, we've got something here. Mm. But how do we how do we fix this, and how do we help? It turned out that the the fix was anti reflux formula, which you could just pick up at Woolies. Yeah, or right. Coles. Yeah. And so yeah, that, that's that was the uh, that was the solution. We went down there and picked mm. that up, and that night Reed slept for eleven hours. <laughs> so it was. Wow. And quick turnaround, uh, which proved that it was it was something that, you know, if we had have had some of that support or we had some people that, you know, knew that maybe this was something that could happen and, and trying that formula wouldn't have hurt Reed, you know, it may have prevented us moving to, you know, six months with all this pain for him. Mm. Uh, but, you know, when you look at the, the positives of all these kinds of circumstances, you know, we learn a lot about ourselves and, and what needs to happen and how we can support others in, in the future as well. And, you know, I've told this story a number of times through the different um, uh, different journeys of my life over the years and and it's amazing how many people after I, I talk about that particular uh, situation come to me, especially dads come to me and say exactly the same thing happened mm. to us. And it goes back to that connection and just having having that story to share and, and I think that's uh, that's really important as new parents. Mm. So you've really nicely set up a segue for me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so you founded this this network called the Australian Dads Network. Can you tell me what it is and why you set it up? So I'll start with the why it was set up first, um, and and then what we do. And so you know, it took me. We had our second boy in uh, January 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we we didn't let him have a chance to get silent reflux. We had yeah. <laughs> we had the anti reflux formula there ready to go. Yeah. Um, and pediatricians and uh, whatnot were okay with that. But what I learned after our second boy was that still in Karatha in particular, and then and since knowing other regional areas across the country, is that there is still a highly transient population, mm-hmm. and and so at that particular time, I still didn't have a large group of mates that were in a similar situation to us with young families and yeah. uh, and and guys that could relate to my story or what I was going through and vice versa. And I knew that I wanted something more. I wanted something more from my life, but also, uh, you know, I wanted to be starting on working on this path as a dad, you know, to be able to, you know, put things in place that I could eventually be able to teach my boys, you know, in a real positive way Mm -hmm. how to be a a man and how to be a leader in the community. And and so I tried to search for Facebook groups or in-person groups here in town and there wasn't anything uh, found a few groups over in the in the US that were resonating with me, but over time I was like, yeah, that's cool on a virtual setting, but I want people like, mm. to have coffee with somebody. Or, yeah, you know, and I mean yeah. in Australia as well, there are there are certain, I guess, barriers and but also really great things that are specific to living here and also specific to living in rural areas like up north that, you know, you're not going to get from a, a Facebook group where the majority of people are in the UK. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's that was the big challenge for me. And this is all before COVID too. So I was like, I was really familiar with using Zoom, you know, because that was the only way that I could connect with people mm. or messenger chats and stuff. And, and so I was like, all right, why don't I just set up a little Facebook group here and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Try and get guys together and, and just go for coffee or go for a camping trip or fishing or go for dinner or whatever. And so that's where it all sort of started. Originally... Um, it was just guys gathering together here in Karatha. Mm-hmm. And then by the nature of the transiency of town and people leaving because, you know, there were police officers or military or teachers or nurses on there sort of, they do two or four years at a time in a regional area, mm. they'd relocate. And I got asked a number of times, you know, hey, I'm leaving town. Can I still be a part of this group? And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, that's, that's fine. Like, you know, remain connected in the group. and. Mm. Wherever you go, we'll, we'll make sure that you can get connected with somebody there. And, and so it just continued to, to, to grow and grow organically. And um, and so, yeah, essentially from me pushing this button on a Facebook group and being the only member for mm. a, a few days, it continued to grow and grow. And, and now, uh, almost seven years later, we've got just under 3,000 guys in the community. And this is all just word of mouth. It's just people inviting their mates. Once they know what we're all about, they invite their mates or their brother or their whoever mm. into into this community so it's really it's a it's a really strong thriving community and and so what it's all about which is was your first question but now yeah. we'll answer it um, yeah. in the second part the main premise is just creating connection and having a supportive network around you to be able to ask any questions about anything and be able to get no judgment support at any particular time so it's 24 7 obviously on facebook so you know we have guys in there that are 18 we have Guys that aren't dads, we have, um, you know, guys up there to the ages of um, uh, 75. Is a guy called Keith in Kalgoorlie, and he's our oldest member at this point. Okay. I, um, and that I've met as well, which is really cool. So um, we have that vast experience, which is really hard to get anywhere else mm. in a in a place that is uh, that has been 
over that seven years, we've created such integrity and such um, support that it's it's really safe for mm. us to be able to just talk about anything. And it's, it is literally anything from new baby stuff to teenagers, troubles to schooling stuff to, you know, um, medical conditions and, you know, everything. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's it's a real broad broad brush, I suppose, but it's it's with that experience that comes from people living their own lives mm. and now being able to say, well, this is this worked for me. You know, maybe it could work for you as well. No advice. It's just support from from your own experience, and then mm. we use that as an opportunity to be able to spark conversation. There is such a need for that, right? Because you've got when when women become pregnant, you've also like you get linked into mothers groups, right? And that's kind of what you do. You you go and you speak to other new mums. You speak to lots of mums who have multiple children who've done this before. And that's exactly what you do, right? You you you've got an issue, you talk about it, you ask for people's advice and you know what they've dealt with before. But you've kind of you've you've drawn attention to this need with dads and it's not just in rural areas, it's kind of everywhere. What has it been like for you? Has it kind of been a, a healing experience for you in in helping other people? that we're in kind of similar situations to you? Yeah, there's definitely an element of that. It's, you know, there's, it's, it's sort of a catch-22 from mm. time to time, you know, because on one hand it's, um, it's perceived that because I started this group that I am, uh, I've gone through all my stuff and I've sorted all my stuff out and I don't have any stuff to deal with anymore. And, you know, <laughs> now I can just be in this position to help everybody. How lucky and for so, you. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, it, a guru of dads, maybe I don't know, but it's it's not it's not the case at all. And that's you know I'm 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 so real and open about this that you know for everything that I learn, I'm still a student in. I've not mastered anything. It's just constant evolution of Liam, and and it's just it's going to be an ongoing piece of work. And and you know with having kids as well, it's every. Uh, it, my father-in-law told me that the very first um, when we had our first boy that. It never gets easier; it just gets different. Mm. And so, with that, I put that sort of philosophy into most things in life. Is is that you know things things we can continue to learn and develop on. It doesn't mean we can master them, mm. um, and we should never look to just continue to be a student and continue to learn. On the other side of that is that um, you know I learn so much from that community and 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 from the guys that are inside of it. Mm. I've got mentors that are inside that community that I speak to outside of it that, that support me in, in a, a variety of different uh, facets of, of my life, which if I didn't push the button on this group, I wouldn't have that support, you know. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely helped me and it's continuing to help me as much as it is for everybody else that's in that community. And... Uh, and yeah, I keep learning so much, and and to the point where, like, through this journey of the last seven years, providing support, um, seeing what uh, struggles guys are going through, and how, uh, and learning things and techniques of how to help others, uh, it got me to a point of of now being able to start my own business as a um, counselor, as a men's mental health therapist. Uh, it's it's moved me away from doing the the nine to five, which I have been doing for for so many years, and mm. and being able to just dive straight in and, and do this with a level of experience and a level of support um, behind me that is 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 starting to impact us in a in a 
uh, personal way as well. So, mm. and again, goes back to that very starting point around around you know what I'm doing in this world, which can show my boys how they can support community as well. Yeah, right. So this kind of shift into this new career path, which you'd kind of already set up, but now really forging. Is this? It's not just for dads. It's for men generally, or even young guys. Is that kind of right? Is that what you do? Yeah, so uh, so the business I've set up, which is called Grit and Gratitude, it's basically a, um, a, a mental health service. It's open to everybody, mm. but the the way the design has been created and, and, and a lot of the marketing is based off of uh, trying to attract men mm. uh, to be able to access mental health services yeah. and, and, and just be able to have a space that they feel comfortable to come and, and talk to uh, mm-hmm. someone about their stuff that's that they've got going on. Um, I go out to workplaces and stuff and, and have those conversations at workplaces around mental and emotional health and, and well-being so that it's a, it's a really an opportunity to be able to just say, hey, there's someone here that you might relate to. And, yeah, yeah. And really just, again, back to regional areas where there's so many gaps in this space and there's a lot of men that are hurting. It's, uh, you know, it's it's something that I'm passionate about and, mm. and I have the space and, and our family, we have the space to be able to, now to be able to go in and, and give it a crack and see if I can make a difference in a full-time capacity as opposed to a yeah. volunteering capacity after hours. Yeah. I mean, do you see a lot of – so for people who are not from Western Australia, so I'm not originally from from WA, and the first time I heard the term FIFO was when I first moved here, and I thought, what the what, what is that? I don't know what that is. So fly in, fly out, and it means that um, a lot of people, a lot of men – they fly away from their families and work for, you know, sometimes many weeks and then they come back and have like a their time off and then they go back and they they kind of have this schedule often where they're away for a really long time during the year. Now, we, we know in the mental health space that that can be really damaging for well-being, particularly for, for fathers. And I could imagine it would be even worse for new fathers. Do you... Do you talk to a lot of FIFO guys? Um, I do, and, and definitely in the workplace, uh, the wellness and wellbeing sessions that I deliver at workplaces, there's a lot of FIFO and drive-in, drive-out people that, that mm. attend those sessions. The one-on-one stuff is a fair mix. So there's the interesting thing is that a lot of the clients that come and do one-on-one sessions with me are working in the resource sector that have access to a free employee assistance program that mm. have access to all the stuff. Um, however, that their preference is to speak to someone face-to-face. Yeah. And so there's also huge benefit in – so with the FIFO space in particular, people coming away from their families, having the space uh, in between shifts or, you know, uh, in a day off or whatever to be able to go and, and, and have, a, have some time to themselves to be able to – reflect, have a conversation about some of the stress that's going on so that when they're now returning home, mm. they've had a chance to have a bit of a debrief or a bit of let some stuff off their chest, get some support, some guidance, or maybe some, some new strategies so that when they go home to their families, then, they're, um, then they can be engaged and they can be present mm. and they can feel that they've, they've got some, some new tools to be able to help. So yeah, it's it's a combination, I suppose, at the moment, and yeah. and only been active since um, February, 
Oh, our, okay. Our service. So it's brand new. Yeah. So it's 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 still developing. Um, I suppose that awareness, but it's it, being in town for 13 years. My relationships over this time have started more and more clients coming through and mm. more and more opportunities for people to get some support. Mm. Uh, so I only see it um, continuing to grow and um, and we'll just continue to support. And I think the other big thing that I've noticed over the last um, sort of six to 12 months is just how many uh, local providers and support people there are in, in communities like this. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of the time big companies go down to uh, major capital cities and try and find people to facilitate sessions or EAP providers must all be in the cities and you know some of the companies up here use an EAP provider that's over in Melbourne for instance has no connection with yeah. uh, a regional place in WA so yeah. you know one of the big things that we're doing is a whole group of us here in town that are really trying to get us all together and say hey we're all here yeah we live here we work here we have houses here whatever it might be we're here committed, so let's all let's yeah all work together in a, in a community, and uh, and that's a really positive thing that's happening, especially in Karatha. Yeah, but, um, uh, I have no doubt a similar sort of movement is happening across most of regional WA in particular. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely seeing. I guess the more the the push to upskill people that already live there, and I I'm totally yeah on board with that as well. I think it's a great idea, Liam. I want to talk about so back to the the Australian Dads Network. Yep. You you would hear lots of really great advice. Can you give us some tips for any new dads that might be listening? Mm-hmm. I think the biggest one that to lead the pack of all the the tips, I reckon that is that because uh, there's so many that I think the the biggest one that comes to mind is just looking after yourselves, yep. and that's plural. That's that's mum and dad. Yeah. Um, and with that has come, I suppose, that second step is uh, the second tool is is communication. Yeah. So having those two things at, at front of mind, then to look after yourself, whether that's, you know, continuing the activities that you used to do. A lot of dads, um, a lot of mums would have been part of the footy team or the cricket club or darts or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, and then all of a sudden parenting comes on and it's just everything drops off. With a lot of those things, there was a social connection part of it that mm-hmm. is now also lost. Yeah. And so essentially we're sort of by some weird default, we're now isolating ourselves because we have you know, a family to look after. So, but that also, you know, there's, there's also activities that you would have done by yourself. You know, maybe it was gaming or maybe it was cooking or, you know, going for a run if you're into that kind of stuff. So any sort of self-care stuff that you were doing prior keep that going in some capacity, but also implement new things. So, you know, there's there's lots of self-care, like emotional regulation tools that you can use on a daily basis, breathing, meditation, you know, whatever it is that, that works for you. Um, do those things, put them into a routine every day and make sure that you continue to do them. Make a commitment to yourself to, to be looking after yourself because then everyone benefits. Yep. And that's the mum and dad. Um, and the other thing is communication. I think, you know, the, the big thing is uh, is making sure that when you're not feeling 100% or when you've got a, you feel that stress or you feel some struggle or you want to you wanna go and have a meal with a bunch of the guys one night or whatever it is or have that conversation yep. and just be willing in the right time and create that space to be able to 
communicate how you're feeling or, or what you want to do that you know is going to is going to fill your cup up and give you some energy. And I think that's really important. Go back to the the story with with Reed early on in our parenting journey. We communicated, but I think we were, we both wanted to do this together. We were unsure of the whole. We didn't read any of the books or anything, so mm. we were just like, "Oh, I think this is how we're supposed to do it." So we were yeah. supporting each other through it. But you were winging it, as though. A result, we, were, we were winging. <laughs> yeah, it. We, yeah. We weren't saying, "Hey, what if maybe we just alternate sleeps patterns or something?" Mm. So communication is a, is a is a a big part of it for sure. Yeah, and. And I think the third, if there's three, it's a nice round number, I suppose. Um, <laughs> the, the third thing I think would be uh, to just be kind to yourself, mm. you know, self-compassion. Yeah. And and just remind yourself when things are getting tough and you go, oh, this is too much and I didn't know it was going to be like this and yeah. you start talking yourself down or you're not good enough or why is, why does the neighbour look like they've got it all together? Just remember that you're new to this, especially if it's your first first baby, you're new to it. Yeah. Relax, be kind to yourself. It's it's it, everything's going to be okay. Just learn from every experience, and uh, and and you'll get through it 100. And if you can do it with a level of fun, um, curiosity, and uh, and joy, then uh, it will benefit as well. Amazing advice, Liam. That's I think that's that ends things on a really positive note. So. <laughs> Unless you've got any other tips, those three are amazing. It's been amazing to talk to you, Liam. It's been awesome to talk to you, Alex. Appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, uh, feel free to reach out. If anyone has any questions or wants to get in touch, then just yeah, reach out and we're happy to continue the conversation. Yep, absolutely. Australian Dads Network. Check it out. So today we're joined by Dr. Vincent Mancini. Vincent Introduce yourself. Sure. Thanks, Alex. Um, yep, yeah, Dr. Vincent Mancini. I'm a senior research fellow here at Telethon Kids Institute. Um, my official title is actually the Fathering Project Research Fellow, um, and that's thanks to my role here being funded by a large non-for-profit by the name of the Fathering Project. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm really interested in, in fathering. So I, I did a PhD in parent attachment. Mm. And we know attachment is so important early on for babies and the parents, but the focus is often, and it certainly was in my PhD, on the mothers. What can you tell me about attachment for fathers? Mm. It's, a, it's a really great question. And I mean, part of the privilege of my role in research is being able to unpack that and find out for myself and also learn from dads uh, at the individual level, what does attachment mean for them? Um, I think you also raised a really good point that when we use the term parenting in research, especially in the context of child health research, for some reason there is the perception that we are looking at engaging with mums. Mm. Um, really, I'm interested in all caregivers, mums, dads, um, and other parents as well. So what was really important for me early on in this piece of work is actually teasing apart parenting from fathering. And people ask that question all the time, you know, mm. You know, what is fathering and how is it different to mothering or how is it different to parenting? So it's a very complex area. Um, but if I was to go back to your question on uh, why or how attachment is important for fathers, um, I think the thing that we see is that if we go right back to taking an evolutionary understanding about child health and well-being, parents want their offspring to be safe, healthy, secure, strong, and that's the same for mothers and fathers 
overall. Mm -hmm. What we also know in that early period of transition into fatherhood and parenthood or when men become dads is that there's also evidence of changes in um, endocrine function. So we're talking about hormones. Right. Okay. So, for example, when dads... um, transition into fatherhood and when babies are born, there's actually a noticeable drop in men's testosterone levels. Um, And these testosterone levels actually stay lower than um, average for about the first three to six months of the baby's life. Why is that? Great question. Uh, Look, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, though the argument tends to be an evolutionary one. Um, The suggestion or what's been put forward is that um, testosterone, high levels of testosterone would encourage competitiveness Um, and would also encourage things like promiscuity, risk-taking behavior, which um, back when we were um, our ancestors, Mm. you would find that dads would disengage and leave um, mother and infant behind. Right. So in some ways, people have speculated that the drop in testosterone seen um, in most dads when a baby is born is actually to keep them uh, involved and engaged in the lives of their kids. Obviously, now in 2023, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Mm. Um, But there is noticeable change in not only dad's hormones, but also neural activity and even biology as well. So So their brains and their bodies. Their brains and their bodies will change. And people sometimes like to um, use the term dad bod. (laughs) Um, So that that actually happens. Yeah. So look, um, for the dads that are listening, Um, I'm not trying to um, justify anything here for you, um, but there is actually a change in the physiology of men as well. So, for example, gaining a little bit of weight is actually common because, again, from the evolutionary perspective, it's your body is getting ready for the late nights, the, um, the, the caring for the kids. Wow, that's so fascinating. Now, you're touching on something that I actually wanted to ask you, mm. and That's around the roles that Mm. we play now in parenting. I think it's pretty well established what the mother's role is. Mm. Do you think that fathering and and the role that dads play is changing or has changed Mm. over time? Yeah. Uh, what we're seeing in Australia especially um, and other Western industrialised nations is that there has been quite a rapid shift in the uh, roles and responsibilities of fathers. Two, two examples come to my mind. The first is across European and American and also Australian populations is that between, I think it's the 1960s and the 2010s, the amount of time that dads would spend engaged in caregiving for their young children, so changing nappies, feeding, bathing, etc., has uh, at least tripled. So you're looking at a 300 and up to 600% increase in the amount of time that dads would spend engaged in those types of activities. Wow. More recently, what we're seeing is that between 1992, um, it's the year I was born, and I think you as well, yes. if that's right, um, year of the monkey. <laughs> yes, very good. Um, is that dads in 1992, dads of young kids in 1992, um, spend about 30, spent about 30% less time with their kids than dads in the sort of 2010s. So even in that 30-year wow. time span, we've seen a bit of a th- about a 30% increase in the uh, amount of time that dads are spending uh, undertaking those types of roles. That's a quite a rapid shift. Yeah, ra- very rapid. And people have sort of speculated as to why this has happened. There are two main reasons 
And the, the first is that um, the, the norms and the stereotypes around what it means to be a father or a mother have sort of shifted a little bit. Mm. So for those dads who actually feel really comfortable and want to um, be active and be present and be engaged, they still experience some stigma, but mm. definitely less than previous generations. So, mm. you know, being a stay-at-home dad, for example, these days um, may not gain as much stigma. Mm, it's as, not so out of the norm. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So that's part of um, what we're seeing is that parents maybe have a little bit more autonomy in parenting how they want to parent. Mm. Um, but the other reason is that um, women's entry and participation into the workforce has yep. been a huge driver of dads um, taking some of the roles and responsibility at home. Mm. Um, not that I do a lot of research in this sort of sociology space, but they have talked about the first and second wave of the gender revolutions, the first wave being when women entered the workforce en masse, mm. um, typically around world wars. Um, and the second wave, which is sort of where we are now, is when dads are entering the household and um, participating in a lot more um, sort of the, of those care activities for their kids. Yeah, right. So it probably plays into gender roles changing over time. And yeah. Yeah, that's – I hadn't actually thought about it, but it makes total mm. sense. Yeah, it is very interesting. Now, I want to know what this – so, you know, we, we're seeing this trend that – dads are becoming more involved in their their kids' lives growing up. Mm. What impact does that have on the kids' development? Mm. Another really good question. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> I, I should probably preface this by saying that um, many children will grow up in single-parent households or same-sex parents' households and will thrive and do very well. So by no means am I saying that children need to have a mother and a father mm. and that's the only way that they can actually thrive. Yeah. Well, I mean, it plays into quality yes. attachment with your caregiver, right? That's, Absolutely. Yeah, that's something that I'm, I'm very cognizant of mm. as well. But mm. yeah, go on. Yeah. So for me, it's if you have two caregivers present, good, healthy relationships with both will always be better than one healthy and one unhealthy or one stagnant relationship. So the question that you're saying around, you know, what is it about dads and good relationships and attachment with dads? What outcomes do we see translated into children's health and development? Um, there is some research. Uh, a lot of it's actually around children's language acquisition. Mm. And this goes back to what I was saying earlier on about where uh, mothers and fathers may differ in terms of the impacts that they have on their kids. So when it comes to children's language development and language acquisition, what we have seen in the research is that on average, dads tend to use more complicated language when communicating with their kids, sort of their toddlers mm, onwards. Right. So they'll use more words that toddlers actually don't know, mm. and they'll actually ask more questions to elicit um, responses from their children. Right. So when it comes to the uh, rapid expansion of children's language that happens around toddlerhood. Yeah, that um, real explosion at about 12 months of age, yes, you see. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so also for those who are parents who are listening, um, you may be able to reflect on hearing how um, maybe dad talks to um, young children compared to how mum talks to young children. Mm. Obviously, that's um, we're, we're talking about averages here, so yeah. you'll vary from family to family. Yep. But language acquisition is a really interesting one. Mm. Um, there is also some research, a lot of it coming out of the US, looking at um, families who grow up in poverty or in disadvantage yes. and following these families over time. And what we tend to see is that positive father involvement in the early lives of their children do predict better educational outcomes, vocational outcomes, as well as some problem health behaviours as well. So, for example, um, lower rates of uh, offending, um, mm. 
less likely to use substances, um, addiction, and so on. Right. So it's really kind of what we call a protective factor. Mm. So it can be really good for a kid's development mm. if we've got healthy mm-hmm. attachment and, and good yes. um, you know, involvement early on. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the other things that's also quite interesting that we're seeing in the research as well is that um, – I know that you have your background in in infant health and mm. sort of young children as well as I do. So a lot of the time you hear this term rough and tumble play. I was, I was going yeah. to ask you about rough and tumble. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so um, the way that healthy attachment relationships between fathers and children are expressed can be different to how mothers and children are expressed. Um, sometimes people talk about this term called activation theory. Mm-hmm. Activation theory seems to be more in line with how dads interact with their kids. So it's getting them excited, getting them to take safe risks, getting them to learn their limits and their boundaries. Mm-hmm. Rough and tumble play is a really interesting phenomena across species, mammalian yes. species. Mm. So it's not unique just to um, humans. We see other primates do it. We see mice do it as well, where the um, paternal figure, the dad or mm. the male mouse, whatever yep. they're called. <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the Mickey, not the Minnie. <laughs> Um, but what you'll see is that they will actually engage in rough, rough and tumble play with their offspring. Mm. And what's also really interesting as well is actually seeing what happens to those offspring who don't experience rough and tumble play early on. Mm. Um, and what you see in the animal models is that those infants who are deprived of rough and tumble play um, have a lot of issues with uh, social interactions with their peers right. um, when they grow up. So there is something really unique about the rough and tumble play. Um, again, it's not something that is only reserved for dads. Mums and other parents can engage in rough and tumble play as well. But we do tend to see that um, dads tend to be the driving force of that rough and tumble play, that safe risks, you know, throwing them up in the air, putting mm. them on monkey bars. Mm. Um, but all of that is really um, supportive of child's development. So sometimes I'm thinking of, of certain populations of kids who, you know, we might have issues around rough and tumble play. And one of the, the, the big issues is kind of early medical complications. I'm thinking, mm. you know, you have to be careful around some kids, like if they've had preterm birth. Mm. Okay? okay. Yes. So what I'm interested in is we know attachment is really important. Mm. Now, I know from my research with mums that certain things like preterm birth like admission to a neonatal intensive care unit. Mm. So those early on when when babies are born and they're sick, they're born preterm or they have just some sort of medical complication, Mm. they're admitted to hospital for a long time, that can actually interrupt the attachment. It can cause mum a lot of stress. It causes Mm. the baby a lot of distress as well. Do we see the same thing with dads? Yes. Um, The short answer is yes, and I'm happy to go into that. Yeah, Um, I'd love you to. (laughs) I I suppose- you know, the, the concept of preterm birth is not just um, a, a mum's problem mm. or a baby's problem. Um, preterm birth um, resonates throughout the whole family system and even extended family yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely. So I think what we really want to be doing is thinking about something like preterm birth, um, which is really common. Um, I think it's about 10% of all babies in Australia will be born early. Yeah. Um, you know, self-proclaimed um, preterm baby myself. Yes, so, and, and my sister was preterm, so it's yeah. very common. Incredibly common. Yeah. Um, and it's also it doesn't mean that it's any less traumatic for those families that mm. go through that. 
the impact of preterm birth on uh, infants and babies is very well established. Um, we also know about the impact that it has on mum, both physically. Mm. Um, oftentimes, the nature of a preterm birth means something unexpected has happened. Yeah. Um, in Some sort of the emergency. Baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you can find that there's additional physical complications there. Mm. Um, but also, what my research is showing is that dads are also um, really impacted by uh, preterm birth mm. and the nature of a traumatic birth can definitely disrupt those early attachment relationships that we know is just so critical um, for a baby's um, health and well-being in the long term as well. Mm. I can give a little bit of a background story if you don't mind me Please. going off on a tangent. Go for it. In Australia now, um, the gold standard model of care for a preterm baby is something called family integrated care or mm -hmm. fire care. And the fire care model basically states that as soon as it is safe for a preterm baby to be held, cuddled, fed by its parents, it should be. Yeah. The older models, which operating on evidence, much older evidence, was that if a baby was born early, um, preterm, and it was very small and fragile, it would be taken away from its parents, mm -hmm. placed in an incubator, yep. fed, um, bathed, etc., from nursing staff. Mm. And then when the baby was safe, um, and reached its gestational, correct gestational age, yep. it would then be sent home to the parents. And So they're separated for a very long time. Yeah. So yep. upwards of, in some cases, you're looking at 100 days or so mm. before a baby could be held by its parents. Yep. And we know just how important that early period is. What actually led to the uh, implementation of the fire care model was um, a South American country which uh, had hospitals with rolling blackouts. So right. the energy infrastructure in the country actually meant that the hospitals were losing power and babies were freezing to death oh my because goodness. it was so cold. Yeah. And what the nursing staff did was they said, okay, we need to do something. Let's let's just get the parents to hold these babies because mm. um, it's too cold and they'll, they'll literally freeze to death. Mm. And what they found was inadvertently by placing these babies in the arms of their parents, um, which seems so natural, mm. um, these babies actually grew healthier, grew faster, and the family system was actually much more um, supported. Mm. And the longer-term outcomes for those babies were um, significantly improved compared to that older model of care, which was we'll take the baby away and then give it back later. Yeah, wow. Um, so that's a, a slight tangent off into the fire care model. Mm. But really for me, what I'm seeing here in, in the research and in the work that I'm doing with some really fantastic partners at King Edward Memorial Hospital and, and here at Perth Children's Hospital is that there is a real need to actually include dad into that fire care model. Yeah, yeah. I was I was going to mention that because I know anecdotally I've I've talked to to fathers who there's actually been some barriers to them being able to be around their baby. So, for instance, I have this one story, one of my friends who it was it was really stressful early on. She, the, the woman uh, had an emergency caesarean, uh, baby came out, and mum was whisked off to surgery, mm. baby was taken to the NICU, and dad was left like standing mm. in the waiting room mm. just not knowing what was going on. And not only is that incredibly stressful for him, but then no one really looked after him in the process. Mm. And I can imagine that's not an isolated incident, especially with like COVID and, you know, only a, hospitals only allowing a certain number of people mm. in. Mm. Is that what you're seeing as well? Yes. Yeah. So 
I, I don't want to go on about COVID too much mm. because um, we've we've heard a lot about the impact of COVID across the healthcare system. Mm. But what I would say is that COVID definitely shone a light on just how distressing this can be for dads mm. and how little support is actually available for dads of any newborn, um, but especially in the context of a traumatic, often unexpected birth, such as a preemie birth. Yeah. Um, so during COVID, especially where there was limited visiting hours and restrictions on who could go in, anecdotally, what we've seen here in some of the hospitals in Perth who were adhering to these policies was that some dads would wait in the car for two to three hours wow. outside the hospital whilst mum was in there feeding and taking care of the infant. Um, and I think for some dads, that idea about more or less feeling non-essential mm. uh, in the lives of their children can be really challenging. Mm. You also touched on something really important there, which is um, dads who may feel like there wasn't actually a lot of support available to them. And this is partly um, driven by the healthcare system, um, given that currently policies actually state that uh, mums and babies are hospital patients um, when they come into a right. hospital, but there's actually no legislative requirement or policy requirement to actually check in with dad. Right. Um, hospitals that do do that, and a lot of them do, they do that because they know it's the right thing to do when they're working with families. Yeah, but, but in terms of- I can imagine if it's an overburdened mm. system, dads would be the first to be kind of booted. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, the literature sometimes uses emotionally provocative terms like the father by the bedside or the forgotten parent um, when it comes to preterm birth. And what's also probably especially important to recognize, and we hear this from the nursing staff as well, is that for these dads who have a preterm baby or who go through the neonatal intensive care units is once they go home, that's actually when they start to decompensate and the wheels will come off mm. because they find themselves in this position where it's high adrenaline, high stakes. They rush mum to hospital, baby's born. There's other kids that they need to be taken care of. Um, they take their paternity leave from work and the baby who's born early um, is safe mm. and healthy and then goes home and then all of that catches up with dad. So mm. there's this massive wave from what the nursing staff will tell me, sort of two to three weeks within um, after they go home, wow. that it all catches up with them. That it sounds as though because like we know there's a lot of literature, there's a lot of evidence mm. uh, supporting the kind of prevalence of postpartum mm. depression and anxiety in mm. women. Yes, right, we know it happens. We know it's it's actually quite mm -hmm. common. Um, we know it's this huge issue and there are support services out there for women who experience postpartum depression. Mm. What about dads though? It would happen mm. to them too. Yeah. This is, I mean, this is a really great question. And for me, you know, I think that in the previous part that I was talking about, I sort of said how dads can decompensate once mm. they go home. And what I mean is that um, everything catches up with them. Right. Um, the distress, the anxiety, mm. um, the lack of sleep, the I haven't been taking good care of myself yeah. because I've been so stressed. Um, I've used all my parental leave and now I've got to go back to work. And, yeah. you know, my baby has just come home and my partner's struggling. So all of that understandably and unsurprisingly can contribute to higher levels of distress in dads. Mm. Um, for those who are listening, I'm about to stand on a soapbox here. <laughs> Please. Um, but the concept of postnatal depression and anxiety in men is still a really interesting and perhaps not well understood phenomena. We know that um, fathers can experience postnatal depression and anxiety at a rate that is similar to mothers. Wow. Sometimes a little, 
prevalence estimates are sort of varied, but it can somewhere vary between half as much or an equal amount. Yeah, so um, quite a significant amount. Of absolutely, yeah. quite a significant amount. But also perhaps what's um, important to note as well is that for those parents, so not just mums and not just dads, but for those parents who experience a traumatic birth, like a preemie birth yep. or another type of um, complicated birth, the rates of postnatal depression and anxiety go up by almost eight times. So wow. you're nearly eight times more likely to experience a sort of postnatal mental health condition um, when you experience a traumatic birth. Mm. And um, that residual impact of a traumatic birth does, um, it sticks around. And, you know, I'm sitting in a room with doing a podcast with a trauma expert, so I don't need to sort of explain this to you. No, but it's true. If you don't heal, it doesn't go away. And mm. it's, something, it's not something you can just push through. No. You know, grit your teeth and, and it'll go yes. away. It doesn't. Yes. And what I also want to do at this point is also dispel a myth, again, now that I'm in the room with the trauma expert, <laughs> is it's not a dose response. There isn't mm. like, you know. Even a small traumatic event mm -hmm. can have a really, really significant impact and a lasting impact on not just your own mental health and well-being, but the health and well-being of your family as well. There isn't a threshold to how much trauma that you can experience. And in the context of a preterm birth, what I'm saying is even if your baby was in NICU for a day or two, that relatively short period of your baby's life and as your life as a family can have a significant impact that you'll see years later sometimes if um, things are left unresolved. Yeah. Going back to postnatal depression and anxiety in men, one of the things that uh, we also see in the clinical research as well as intervention work and assessment of postnatal depression and anxiety is it's not well measured in men mm. and so part of the issue on the prevalence rates is we actually might not be doing a very good job at diagnosing mental health conditions post-birth in men like postnatal depression yeah, and anxiety. we're not picking up on it we're not picking up on it because you're less likely to actually have dads coming through your services as i mentioned before hospitals don't actually consult with dads or assess dads after they babies will go home um, the tools that they use to actually diagnose um, postnatal depression and anxiety in dads is often um, an adapted version of a measure called the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale. But that's used for mothers. Yeah. yeah. So developed for mums. Um, the items themselves haven't changed. Um, it's just they adjust the scoring threshold. Mm. And so for me, the conundrum I find myself in when I think about mental health of new dads is that maybe we're not actually measuring things as well as we should be. Mm. When it comes to postnatal anxiety and depression, what we also know is that distress um, following a traumatic incident can manifest in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always look like depression or anxiety. What we see um, from the clinicians that work in um, neonatal care and with infants and new families is that other symptoms that dads will experience following the birth or especially a traumatic birth of their child could include things like dissociating from the family. Mm. So they just, they disappear because they yep. don't actually know how to cope. Yeah. Um, they or get angry. Maybe not even like physically disappearing mm. though, mentally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they just seem absent, disengaged. Yep. They're there, but they're not there. Yeah. Yep. Um, they might be irritable. So mm. you're looking at um, you know, anger, temper. Um, they're frustrated very easily. Um, they may be throwing themselves into their work as a way to distract from how they're actually feeling about the situation with their family and dealing with the aftermath of a traumatic birth. And so um, for me, and again, this is sort of yet to be done work, but I sometimes think about 
um, I, I sometimes think about this phenomena as more of a postnatal adjustment condition mm. rather than just anxiety or depression because we see that um, that distress can can come out in so many different ways. And mm. if we just keep trying to put dads in the anxiety or depression box, there might be a lot of dads out there and mums who are struggling in different ways that um, also need our support. Mm. So this seems like a pretty big issue, even for, I guess, dads who are not quite at that end of the spectrum of, you know, really, really struggling, but even just new parenthood is kind mm. of an adjustment period. Mm. What can fathers do to to kind of best support themselves and their families? Are mm. there, you know, support groups out there? What, what can they do? Yeah. Again, this is a really great question and one that uh, we as health professionals still haven't really nailed yet. Mm-hmm. There are good uh, supports for fathers that are out there, and these aren't always um, father-specific supports. Mm-hmm. So you might find that there are many parenting services uh, here in Western Australia. You know, we have Nagala as a really good example mm-hmm. of a, a parenting service that's available. Uh, organizations like Panda um, on a national level mm-hmm. that have information and resources for parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll find that mums and dads and other parents share many roles and responsibilities and that transition to parenthood um, is characterised by a lot of shared difficulties. Mm. Um, So what I'm saying is I suppose that we don't always necessarily need um, dad-specific stuff Mm. because parents are parents. doesn't matter um, what your gender is and what your role is in the child's life. You all of a sudden have this little person that you're responsible for caring for and making sure they don't hurt themselves and they're fed and they're clean and they're watered. So <laughs> it's hard, you know. Yeah. Um, but that said, what we also know about men's um, help-seeking behaviour is that that transition to fatherhood, that period when um, people become dads, is actually a period in a person's life when they're most likely to seek support. Mm. Okay, so and it's kind of a great time for us as the the mental health professionals yes. to step in. Yes, absolutely. And am I allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> we can try and bleep it out. Okay. All right, we can test out the bleeping. <laughs> but the story that you'll hear is that um, there's a new dad and he will say something along the lines of, I need to get my shit sorted. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I can't keep... Um, coping with life the way I've been coping because I have a, a partner and I have a child mm. on the way and I need to get my stuff together. Yeah. Um, but even acknowledging that a lot of men will use that transition to fatherhood as a period where they'll seek support, Yeah. we also know that for parenting specifically, dads are very underrepresented in parenting intervention and parenting support services mm. uh, at a rate of about one to five. So for every um, one dad that you'll see accessing support for parenting, there's about five mums. Yeah, wow. Um, there are some other programs that I would probably say are really useful for new dads. Um, it would be remiss for me not to mention the Fathering Project. Of course. Um, given how, <laughs> <Sprick yourself. laughs> uh, given how much they do in the space of fathering. Um, but also uh, quite recently I've returned from a, a trip in Melbourne where um, there was a fairly a, a large intervention that's actually running out of Victoria at a national level 
Oh, it's Newcastle. Sorry, I apologise. That's my hometown, New- Finson. How could you? Sorry. We met in Melbourne, <laughs> but there's a program called SMS for Dads. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so Richard Fletcher, Chris May, Rebecca Liakman and their team over there, um, they've developed a program which is just very low effort for those dads who are listening or for those people who want to recommend it to a dad. It's an SMS service. So it's just a checkup message. Hey, how are you going as a dad? Is everything all right? Do you need some support? Um, so there are supports out there. The other thing that's maybe a bit of a challenge for me as a healthcare professional is the peer-to-peer model of support for dads. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean, peer-to-peer model? So this is dads in the community supporting fellow dads in their community. So our role as a healthcare professional is actually pretty minor. Um, We love to think that we can go in and fix things, but actually I'm really passionate about the community being able to be empowered so Mm. that when one of their own, so to speak, is going through a hard time, they can support themselves. Now, um, peer-to-peer support for dads is also really beneficial because what we find for men is it's an opportunity not only to go and be supported Mm. but also to support other men as well. Mm. And there seems to be a bit of a a trick or a knack to engaging with dads is that we want them to be able to not only be supported by us Mm. but feel like they can support other people around them as well. So Mm. it's, it's part of the model of what makes it so successful. The thing that I've also seen as well is that sometimes the advice that is shared in these peer-to-peer groups is advice that a healthcare professional would actually never think of, Mm. but is actually really critical. Mm. And it makes sense because the community are the experts on themselves. This is it. I think that we should do that for all research. Yeah. The community, the people with lived experience- Mm are the experts they know more than us totally yeah and i think the metaphor that i have in my mind is the community as this amorphous thing is the in the driver's seat with the l plates on and Mm. our role as a healthcare professional is to just provide some guidance and support so we're not telling them um, and we're not necessarily driving the car they're driving the car and we just sort of give them some instructions there's a Mm. speed bump here put your indicator on there watch out for this yeah but as a as one really I guess, poignant example of the types of advice that would be shared in um, a peer-to-peer setting. I've had the opportunity of participating and seeing some of this peer-to-peer interaction. Mm. And there was a question that got asked, which was, what's the most important thing that you would say to a dad of a newborn? And as a healthcare professional, I would say, you know, take care of yourself, take care of your partner, um, self-care, listen to your baby. The advice that the, the dads gave to the new dads was don't shake the baby. So full on. And I I, I doubled, I I did a double take. I was like, what do you mean don't shake the baby? Everybody knows that. Yeah. But not everybody does. You assume that everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah. And what they also said then was that if you find yourself in that situation where you're feeling like that, leave. Get up and leave. Wow. And as a healthcare professional, I would never go out to someone and say, oh, you're a new dad. Don't shake your baby. But for those dads who have been there, they've lived it, they've done the, you know, stress at work, stress at home, baby crying. Um, they they live and breathe this um, a lot more recently. That advice is so invaluable mm. and it's advice that we wouldn't really end up um, giving as a healthcare professional because I wouldn't have thought about it. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like, you know, the community have really good advice and this peer-to-peer support system is fantastic. But I want to end on mm. what your advice would be for fathers kind of trying to look after their own mental health and themselves when they're having a baby? Again, a little bit of a cliche here, but start early. Um, 
when it comes to seeking support, don't wait. Mm-hmm. Um, so how early is, is early? If Even if you're uncertain about what fatherhood looks like for you, if you have some concerns around, um, you know, uh, your baby that's still on the way, so even before a baby's been born, mm. it's a really interesting question is, you know, at what point does someone become a father? Is it, mm. you know, when a sperm meets an egg and they fall in love? It, <laughs> Are we going to have that yeah, chat on yeah, the when podcast? The, yeah, when, the, when the stalk brings the baby back? <laughs> is it when a baby's born? Is it when mum goes into labour? Is it when they come home? And so I think what was really interesting for me is I, I heard someone speak the other week and they were talking about pregnancy and they were saying that even when uh, a baby is the size of a blueberry, it's already got a brain. Mm. Um, so it's it's developing and it's growing. And I think the journey of um, fatherhood and a, the potential challenges that um, someone may experience as they enter fatherhood can start well before a baby's born. Yeah. Um, they can sometimes start even before pregnancy for those. Well, that's what I was thinking mm. as well. You're already emotionally invested. Mm. For those that are trying for a baby, that's an incredibly emotional time. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to um, accessing support or um receiving some support uh, along that parenting journey, I would say that it's never too early to start thinking about seeking support. When you feel that you need it or when other people around you are maybe giving you some signs, it's probably worth listening to them. Um, Your partner may be talking to you, friends, family might be expressing some concerns or some worries for you. These are people you trust. And um, as much as we sometimes like to think that we have the perfect insight into how we're going, when people that you trust and love and respect come to you and say, hey, I'm a little bit concerned about how you're going, um, maybe think about why they would be bringing that up. It's because they actually care about you and they might be noticing something that you might be just a little bit stuck uh, when it comes to um, noticing that yourself. I wouldn't also be afraid to reach out to other dads and also parents to Mm. ask about how they navigated their parenting journeys as well. Yeah. Um, Listen to your body. Um, making sure that you're you're getting um, as much rest as you possibly can before a baby's born because mm. there's not a lot of that after babies have been born. <laughs> um, and also, you know, I think one of the big things that I've seen working clinically with men as well is that um, don't be afraid to give yourself permission to care for yourself. Mm. So don't feel like you always have to put your needs last because now that you're a parent or you're on the verge of parenthood and we're thinking about the needs of the family system, each member of the family system is really important and making sure that um, you're in a position to um, care for other people, care for partners, care for kids. Uh, One of the best ways to actually put yourself in that position is to take care of yourself as Mm. well. And so sometimes... Again, a little bit of a cliche, but we say here, you're taking care of yourself so you can take care of your kids. Yeah, fill your cup. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, So that's probably some extra extra things, I suppose, that dads uh, could do. Mm. Um, But really, I think it is think about what you need to be able to be the best parent and the most supportive parent that you could be. Good advice. Thank you, Vincent. That's okay. Thank you. 